0: Good morning. Please take your scriptures and open them to Ephesians chapter 2. If you're a guest with us, it's great to have you among us. Ephesians chapter 2, we'll be looking from verses 1 all the way to down to verses 10. Uh, this is... Uh, what I would call the season of the witch and the rise in popularity of sorcery. And when most people hear the word witch, they think of Halloween, which was one of the top ten costumes again this year, or they think of Snow White, Wizard of Oz, or more recently, Maleficent, Mistress of Evil. Others think about a brutal sort of distant colonial period that happened in Salem, Massachusetts, or if you're thinking biblically, you think back to first Samuel chapter eight, uh, where King Saul actually sought out a witch in Endor. And initially she did not know who he was. And she says, don't you know that the king has put an end to all witches, mediums and necromancers, those who communicate with the dead. So when we talk about witches and sorcery, we're not talking about something that is outside of the scriptures When people hear about sorcery, their minds typically run to the Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter or more popular, not than those, but sort of more modern setting, the sorcerer's apprentice. But whether real or fantasy, the idea of power and manipulation of the unknown and control are all associated with sort of our culture's idea of witches and sorcery, and that creates a subtle pull and sort of a magnetic curiosity about those things. This is true for the nearly one million Americans who practice pagan witchcraft today. That statistics typically surprises a lot of people because because of our laws of the freedom of religion, uh, it is very difficult to find out how many people are practicing uh, witchcraft and sorcery. It is a nature-worshipping, polytheistic, very real religious experience for the nearly one million people who practice it. The pentagram symbol with the star that many of us are familiar with uh, is designed to honor, that word honor literally worship, five elements, spirit, water, fire, earth, and air. It's interesting that in our text this morning, There's one of these influences called the prince and power of the air. A 2018 Newsweek article stated, quote, witchcraft and other pagan religious practices increased in the U.S. over the past few decades, with millennials turning to astrology and tarot cards as they turn away from Christianity. Romans chapter one, verse 25, the Apostle Paul said they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. Uh, another article written by Sangeeta Singh's Kurtz and Dan Kopp in October 2018 says this, quote, Spirituality is now firmly placed in mainstream culture. The growing interest in astrology driven by millennials, as well as the popularity of crystals and tarot cards via the ballooning wellness industry, have brought mysticism from the fringes and right into your Instagram feed. Though the data is sparse, what we do know is that the practice of witchcraft has seen major growth in recent decades. As the witch aesthetic has risen, so has the number of people who identify as witches. Whatever the exact number is, it's clear that witches are among us, and the current trajectory suggests that their population will continue to grow just yesterday on the radio the announcer and it caught my attention not because I'm grumpy but but because of the way she phrased it she says if you're grumpy all the time it may be because you're one of these five zodiac signs isn't that good news it's not sin that you're an angry mom or a controlling husband it's because you're either Pisces or Scorpio right isn't that good news no there's no good news in that Listen to what Isaiah 47 verses 13 to 14 say. All the advice you receive has made you tired. Where are all your astrologers? Those stargazers who make predictions each month. Let them stand up and save you from what the future holds. But they are like straw burning in a fire. They cannot save themselves from the flame. You will get no help from them at all. Their hearth is no place to sit for warmth. I believe the growing interest in the occult, which is magic, spirits, communication with the dead, and included in that pharmaceutical mind-altering substances has to do not with a fictional fabricated fantasy world, but with a growing belief in the reality of an invisible spiritual realm. This was never a problem. We never had to pull the illusion away from people who lived on the continent of Africa. They practiced spiritism. They believed in spirits and demons and curses. But you come over here where we live in such a material bubble and everything is about plastic and shiny things. And it's almost as if we are living, even, even the Christian community, like Ephesus, which is where we're going to look this morning, as if that's all that exists are these material things When there's an an entirely other world, even in this room this morning. And that's not it's not said to to bring fear, but just a dose of reality. And the comfort is this is what the Apostle John says, that greater is he, the Holy Spirit, who is in you than he, a real entity and person who is in the world. This is why the Apostle Paul has in his prayer in Ephesians one, you're there in Ephesians two, just look back. At Ephesians 1, verse 17, this is a prayer. He says that God, verse 17, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Did you know your heart has eyes? Your inner person can see things that your physical eyes can't typically see. We're so busy seeing with our physical eyes that we fail to see with the eyes of our heart. Spirit beings like demons and angels are not merely mental constructs of our imagination, but they are true spiritual realities. Paul's going to say this in Ephesians 6 verse 12. He says the cosmic powers over this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, So now come back to this letter. Ephesus was not only renowned for its political and economical advancements, but it was known as the center for worship of the goddess Diana, or also called Artemis. They were also well-known. Their fame had spread throughout the world because they were a center of occult practices. It's interesting, sorcery and, and magical arts. I'm just going to explain to you a situation in Acts chapter 19 That happened in in, in, in Ephesus, and then we're going to look at our text this morning. Some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaimed. So these, these seven sons of Siva saw that there was a type of power that the Apostle Paul had that they did not have even as itinerant exorc- exorcists. So they said, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. But the evil spirit answered them. and listen to this. Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And at that point, an all-out demonic, Brawl ensues inside the home and the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. By the way, that's called losing a fight. okay? and that's called going in ill equipped. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus. Ephesus was not a stranger to this spiritual realm, to this world. It's interesting that the problem permeated not only the culture of Ephesus, but it actually crept inside the church. Listen to what happened. Many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Just permeating the entire culture. This is the cultural context of where this church exists. So it is important, look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 21, how the Apostle Paul presents Jesus to these people. He says that Jesus Christ is, verse 21, chapter 1, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. He is above Lucifer. He is above Michael. He is above Gabriel. He is above all the powerful demons. He is above every other name, whether good or evil. And then it says this, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. So here's where we're going to sort of pull our thoughts in now. Everything that exists is under the jurisdiction of the Son of God. Everything Now, with that in mind, chapter 1 moves into chapter 2 and presents a vivid contrast. Here's the contrast. Christ's glory and power and riches with human inability and poverty and need. So we're just going to look at the first ten verses. Past, present, future. Let's look at the past. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. We're given three universal truths which included all of us. Until God had mercy on us. that's why it's using the past tense. You were these things, because He's writing to a church, and a church is composed of believing people. So this is the past. Look at verse one, "And you were dead in the trespasses and sins." This is the description of all of humanity before God has shown mercy. Romans 3:22 to 23 says, "For there is no distinction for all have sinned. So this is the plight of the entire human race. It's interesting that in the parable of the lost son, you have these parables that sort of stack right next to each other. You have the lost coin, you have a lost sheep, but then you have a lost son. We know this as the prodigal son. The father says of his runaway boy, he says this, "My son was dead. Now he was living. And he was ri- he was living in riotous behavior." And he thought he was going to find a better life. He was alive, but it was a deathly kind of life. Relationally, he was living in active rebellion. He was self-centered and he was dishonoring to his parents. That son was dead relationally. Two terms in this first universal truth, you were dead in the trespasses and sins, provide a comprehensive account of spiritual deadness. Look at the first term, trespasses. By the way, the, the, these two terms will describe the wayward path that we walk and the broken boundaries that shape our lives. Okay, just so keep those in mind. You have trespassing and you have sins. Trespass simply means a false step involving either crossing over a known boundary or a deviation from a right path. This is what John says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. He said, sin is lawlessness. That captures the idea of a trespass. You've broken a law, you've deviated, you've crossed a boundary. And then sins means missing the mark. The word used for sin there is literally missing the mark. And this is is communicated in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. All fall short. That's where we get that idea of missing the mark. All fall short of the glory of God. We miss God's glorious standard. So, So spiritually, this is what it looks like spiritually we are trying to get to colorado springs and somebody told us all you have to do is get on i-25 and go south for about 45 to 50 minutes and we end up spiritually in cairo egypt we don't even remember crossing the ocean we've never been to north africa before do you know lostness is a real thing And spiritual lostness can be an eternal thing. Sin always takes us farther than we plan to go and costs much more than we ever expected to pay. Sins and trespasses. Now, these two terms cover what is often called by by commentators and theologians as sins of commission, things we do, and sins of omission, things we fail to do. For example, we have acted in pride. And selfishness. We've used the Lord's name in a worthless way. We've been jealous. We've coveted. We've lied. We've slandered. We've thought evil things. We've committed those things. We've trespassed. But we've also failed to do certain things. We've failed to be kind. We've failed to give the benefit of the doubt. We've failed to love God. We've failed to love others. We've failed to forgive and show mercy. We have omitted those things. Both. Our trespasses and sins. Why do we do that? Because it was natural to us. It was natural to spiritually dead people to sin, to trespass, to miss the mark. And you were dead in trespasses and sins. Now look at the next universal truth in verse 2. In which you once walked. Now walking does not refer to a single trail or a single line. It refers to an entire Sort of comprehensive lifestyle. This is the way of life. It was a deathly kind of living, empty and meaningless and dishonoring to God. And do you know why we naturally followed that course? Because we were under three influences. First of all, look at verse 2 in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Now, that idea. The course of the world refers to the organization of society without any reference to God. It could include some good things, and it certainly includes evil things. It is to be comfortable and shaped by an anti-God culture. It is, as Paul says in Romans 12, to be conformed, to be pressed into the world's image. It is to allow secularism to be the moral compass of our life. What does that look like? Personal freedom without boundaries. That's what the course of this world preaches, if you would. Personal preference in regards to gender orientation and cheering others on who break through the boundaries God has set. That's the course of this world. Narcissistic. Having having an excessive or obsessive interest in yourself and your physical appearance. Following celebrities closer than you follow Jesus. The worship of wealth, possessions and status. Cynicism about authority. Laughing at sinful practices. And I want us to listen to this one. Motivated and driven by our peer culture. And do you know that I have seen adults do this just as much as our children and teens We are pressed into the world's mold by a pure culture. David Wells, in his book, Losing Our Virtue, said this. You can recognize the ways of this world wherever sin seems acceptable and righteousness seems strange. And folks, that's the culture we're living in. That's an influence. Here's the second influence. We have the influence of the world. There's also the influence of Satan. Look at verse two again. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the prince identifies a real entity, a real spiritual being in ancient times. Air was considered the space between the earth and the moon, which would make sense. It is the area of the spirits. It refers to that which is working not directly on the surface of the earth, humanity, but that which is working in sort of the atmosphere. Here's what the prince does. He influences the spiritual environment, the air of humans, but with physical effect. How do we know that we're under the influence of the prince of the air? Well, if you take your mind back to Genesis chapter three, all you have to do is see if you're being entertained or pulled by the very questions that the prince of the air was doing in the Garden of Eden. Let me ask you this. Are you interacting with satanic suggestions? Okay, What does that sound like? In Genesis 3, it sounds like this. Did God actually say that? And did did he mean that? Are you believing satanic lies? Here's what that sounds like in the Garden of Eden. You will not surely die. Meaning God's words have no veracity, no truth, no power. Are you questioning God's character? The prince said to Eve, God knows that that the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. Did you you catch that, that subtle thread? He's saying, God is keeping something good from you. God knows that when you eat of it, you're going to be better. It is an outright lie, but it is the prince of the air influencing this culture. By the way, in the garden, it was perfect. And the prince is influencing the culture of the garden through Eve. Are you breaking God's commands and leading others to do the same? Eve took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. The influence of Satan permeates godless society. They work together. There's another influence, and it really is a further description of the second influence, Look at uh, the latter part of verse 2. The spirit that now is at work in the sons of disobedience. So Satan influences the surrounding culture and the very spirit. So we're not primarily flesh. We are. W- w- when you see me, I am Steve, but you only see a very fleshly part of me. The more you spend time with me, you will see what animates this body. You will see personality. You will see a spirit that that animates the very body that it is encased in. Satan influences the surrounding culture and affects the spirit, the inner spirit of people, and it has a very real effect on people's behavior. Look at chapter. Look at verse three, chapter two, verse three, among whom we all once lived. And remember, that idea again is a way of life in the passions of our flesh. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So in the absence of God as sovereign Lord, our passions, provoked by a godless society and a prince, a real entity, become the dictator of our life. Go back to verse 1. That's why it says we are what? We are dead. We're dead and we're enslaved. Not only do we imagine it, but we act on it. We carry out the desires. And when it talks about disobedience, namely, this is what unbelief looks like. Disobedience is that unbelief in God. But there's a third universal truth. Look at the middle part of verse three. And we're by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So because we're dead, because we're that kind of people, because we are influenced by a culture and by a real entity and we carry out those passions As the Lord of our life, God intensely hates it and his divine wrath is settled against all evil. That's that's simply what that means. We're children of wrath. Our only inheritance is not to be in Christ and seated in the heavenlies. At this point, our only inheritance is God's divine, settled wrath against sin. And that has to be very clear for us. God's punishment was our only inheritance as children of wrath. These three verses, these first three verses, provide the dreadful diagnosis of our spiritual condition. Now imagine if three different people sought advice from the same doctor. Each is within a year of dying from a rare disease. The doctor explains the bad news first. If you don't get help, this is what you have. And if you don't get help, you're going to be dead within six months. But there's a remedy, but you need to accept it. You need to give me permission to do the treatment. And it's simple. And, and, if, and if, you, if you accept the treatment, you will live. The first person takes offense at the doctor's diagnosis and doesn't believe it. He storms out of the office, calling him a fearmonger and a prophet of doom. He goes on to live his life as if nothing's wrong and he dies four months later. The second person, also offended, felt criticized and hurt. Her self-esteem had been attacked and she said, I just I feel just fine and you're not supporting me. I'm going to write up a scathing review of your practice. She went down to the street to a doctor who would tell her something better. By the way, we, we could call him a prosperity doctor who for the right price will always give a positive diagnosis of your condition. She went home to her family. Happy for the new diagnosis, but died five months later. The third person was quiet at first, stunned by the news. She looked at the doctor and said, I trust you that I'm very sick. Thank you for telling me the truth. And I'm so thankful there's a path forward for healing. Please tell me more about the remedy. This is what you have in the first three verses of Ephesians. Very bad news. It is a diagnosis spiritually And people will react in a variety of different ways. But if you listen to the diagnosis of the first three verses of chapter 2, that we were dead, we are enslaved, we are condemned. Once you accept the diagnosis, you can take hope in the next two words. Look at the next verse. Look at verse 4. What does it say? But God. That wasn't the whole story, right? God did something. And I want to point out and make it crystal clear to every mind. It does not say, but you. But you got wise. Oh, but you got religious. You found your way. You were more clever than others. You were more religious than others. No, but God did something. God acted because of his love and mercy. Keep reading verse 4. But God... Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. This is what God did. God stepped in to save. He initiated something and it was driven by his mercy and by his love. By the way, God's mercy and love is not in response to something he sees within us that is attractive or that merits his favor. It is unmerited favor. God acts in mercy and love because he is that kind of God. That's the only explanation. Three verbs tell us what God did. In Christ, he did these three things. He made us alive. He raised us up and he seated us. And I want you to notice this, that Paul does not begin with but God. It doesn't begin where John 316 begins, though that is vital. He doesn't begin with anything about the death of Christ After he talks about our spiritual condition, because without the resurrection, there is no salvation. So Paul's actually going to skip over some vital points in the gospel story and bring us right to these amazing, amazing truths. Because he just told us you're dead, you're dead and you're enslaved and you're condemned. But God, look at verse five. Who's rich. In mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, the first thing he did, made us alive together with Christ. And don't miss three times. By the way, there's going to be this threefold repetition of this little word with. It is with Christ and with him and with him. There is no salvation without close participation with Jesus Christ. Somehow we got to the point where we think somehow salvation becomes a walking movement and a recitation of a prayer without any kind of union or participation with Jesus Christ in his sufferings, because that is the gift. That is what is being offered. He made us alive together. So by grace, unmerited favor. We are in such close union with Christ that we've actually been raised with him already. Positionally, though, not practically Here's the point. Salvation is only possible because God created life in the midst of death. That's what he did with Jesus. And Jesus is the first fruits of that. Therefore, we are risen with him. Without the resurrection, there is no salvation. So he starts with that. He made us alive together with Christ. How? By grace. By grace you've been saved. The New Testament meaning of the word grace is simply this: completely undeserved loving commitment and faithfulness of God to us. The completely undeserved loving commitment and faithfulness of God to us. Saved. We, we use that as, we use that so often in evangelical Christianity that we lose we lose the point of it sometimes in our story. How many? How many stories, both fictional and non-fictional, have as its sort of plot the rescue of an animal or of a princess or of a child or of a hostage or of a village or of a country or even of an entire planet? People love stories about salvation. Have you ever considered about this story that is unfolding about the rescue of your own soul for eternity? That's the storyline that's going on here. Of the 12 times the word grace occurs in this small letter to the Ephesians, in chapter 2-5, the emphasis is placed on God's saving grace, His rescuing grace. So we would say this, instead of wrath, because we're children of wrath, undeserved love. Instead of judgment, undeserved mercy. That's the picture of the gospel. Look at the second thing he did in verse six. He raised us up with him. Jesus, as our representative king, has already been accepted into heaven. In Acts chapter one, the disciples saw this. We call that the ascension, right? He goes up and he is sitting at the right hand of the father right now, waiting for his enemies to become his footstool. He has been accepted into heaven. Okay, so so, so what? what, is, what how, why does that matter to us this morning? Because with him, it says, it's as if you have already been accepted into heaven. It's an amazing thought. Already positionally, but not yet practically. So this is how we could, we could phrase this. If humanity's most serious problem is living spiritual death because of sin... The solution is a spiritual resurrection in union with a sinless Savior. Do you see how all the other competing world religions don't even come close to this? And it is why Jesus in truth told you that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to the Father except through him. That's because the only remedy is a spiritual death, resurrection with christ in union with the sinless savior here's the third thing he did look at verse six the middle part and seated us with him in the heavenly places in christ jesus okay so we are we are with christ already seated so how is that different than the other two things he's already done Well, you are now seated as if everything is done and finished and you're in a place of honor. That's the kind of value God places on you as his child. This is the kind of inheritance that we saw in Ephesians chapter one. You are you are in union with Christ and now seated in an honored place positionally, though yet though not yet practically. That is this is who we are in Christ. And maybe this will help maybe for our for our for our younger people. What is it? What is it to be in union with Christ? Think about all. You, you get two teams that are going to play in the Super Bowl. Okay, and don't be sidetracked with that. So we already know who's not going to be there. But you're gonna, you're, you're, you're gonna have two teams, and a lot of those players will never cross that white line and get onto the playing field, will they? But at the end of the game, the winning team, all of them, even the ones who never walked across the white line, get a what? They get a ring. Because they were in participation with the team. No, they didn't play, but they were in union or participation or they identified with that team. Only one or two guys really in the whole game uh, will take the ball and either receive it in the end zone or run it across. But everybody, even the guys on the bench that didn't even put their pads on, get six points. Because they're part of the team. There's a union. There's a participation Do you know that there's nothing within us that caused us to be risen with Christ and seated in a place of honor except the fact that we are in Him by grace, with Him, by grace? Romans 5.19 says this, By the one man's obedience, Jesus Christ, the many will be made righteous. So how are you made righteous? And the right response is, by grace alone. In Christ alone. How is that gift received? I mean, why are there people that aren't? It is to be received, and it's the means by which a gift is taken is by faith or through faith. In Christ, by grace, through faith. Now, why did God do that? And this is sort of the future. So we have, we have the past. You were dead in the trespasses and sins. The present... We enjoy everything in Christ that Christ has enjoyed, a resurrected life and a place of honor. But now look at the future. Why did God do this? Look at verse 7. So that, that indicates purpose, so that in the coming ages, that indicates the time, he might do something. Okay, what has he done? Verse 7, to display his grace, number one, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God's grace will be on display and no one will boast because his grace, his undeserved favor, annihilates boasting. The word for explains, in verse 8, explains the statement further. So this is what he's doing. He's putting on display his immeasurable riches of his grace. There's something of wealth and value here that he's going to put on display for eternity. Why will that be on display? Look at verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We must never think of salvation as a kind of transaction. Where God contributes grace and we contribute faith. Because with that kind of picture, you have just made faith a work. And Romans very clearly says, no one is justified by the works of the law. There's no righteous work that you can do to obtain salvation. God had to initiate even before we could believe. So when we talk about saving faith, what we are saying is we are trusting in, that's all faith is, faith is belief. We are trusting in someone who is reliable and trustworthy and will make good on his promises. That's simply what that means. Verse 9, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. Humans in and of themselves have no claim on God's righteousness. He gifts it to us. How do you receive a gift? Let me ask you, does a two-year-old know how to receive a gift? Was it any good work that a two-year-old did to, to, to earn a gift? No, you give your two-year-old a gift. Why? Because you love them and you offer it. And what do they do? I mean, this is so simple. It's not a work. It is. I mean, it's just, it is received. It is. By faith that it's theirs, that you are trustworthy not to snatch it out and throw it in the fireplace. See, ha, ha you don't get a gift. We'd be like, no. I mean, even God says you as evil people know how to give good gifts to your children. So you already know how to give out of love and out of mercy to children who often don't deserve a gift. And that child simply takes it. And now they've received that gift. God does this to display eternally his grace. And his kindness. Secondly, here's what he's doing. He's displaying his new creation. Look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship. That means we're the result of God's activity. Created. And don't miss the the, the creation vocabulary. Something is being recreated. This is new. It's like new birth. Something is being recreated. And notice this phrase again. In Christ Jesus For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This new creation is based on Christ's resurrection. That's why Paul starts, you're dead, but you've been raised with Christ. Good works are the clear outcome of genuine salvation, not the cause of it. John Stott said this, Good works are indispensable to salvation, not as its grounds or means, but as its consequence and evidence. So how do you know this is true of you? I mean, I think we all know that we're all dead in the trespasses and sins. But how do you know that you are now in Christ in a salvific, in a saving way? Is your life characterized by good works? Do you show forth in the normal areas of the day outside of these walls and with this group of people that you love God and you love others and you're a follower of Jesus Christ? You're his workmanship. This is what salvation produces. It's not the cause of it, but it's the certain effect of it. I just want to close with this and you can close your scriptures. There's an incredible illustration in Mark chapter 5 of this kind of real life context of Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 to 10 Jesus is in the northern area of Israel and he he steps out of the boat and confronts a man who is dead, enslaved and condemned. He's a man out of the tombs with an unclean spirit. So there's this this there's Sins and trespasses, but there's also this prince of the air dynamic and these unseen beings. He's living among the tombs with an unclean spirit. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Okay, so, this, so his spiritual deadness has a real natural effect in how he's living. That's what deadness looks like, by the way. Living among the tombs, crying out, and suffering. You were dead in the trespasses and sins. Jesus steps out, approaches the man and the demons inside the man, because this man has become a hotel for thousands of demonic beings. They recognize Jesus and they know him for who he is, not in a salvific way, but they'll say this son of the most high God. That's what they say. That's what the demons are saying. They plead for mercy based on some kind of knowledge of the future And Jesus, with compassion, interacting with the man, asks him, what is your name? He replied, so there's this very close association, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now, in a Roman Legion, which is where that term is taken from, a Roman Legion had between anywhere from 4,000 to 6,000 soldiers. The demon is saying, there's a lot of us. The man is a living example of the trouble humanity is in. They say they begged Jesus. It's a very interesting picture. Thousands of demonic entities now beg him. That's the word the scripture uses saying, send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. Now notice who's in control in this narrative. I love how verse 13 explains what happens next. So Jesus gave them permission. Ephesians 121, Jesus is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. And folks, the demons know that. Perhaps what is most surprising to me is not Legion or the herd of pigs rushing down in madness to be drowned, but the townsfolk's response. It picks up the story. It says the herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country and the people came to see what had happened and they came to Jesus. And this is interesting. They came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind. Jesus never preached a sermon on modesty. He never rushed him down to the local synagogue. This man confronted Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He's clothed and he's in his right mind. That's exactly what Ephesians is saying. He was dead in the trespasses and sins in which he once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. But now God in the Son, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved him, even when he was dead in his trespasses, made him alive by grace. He was saved. That's the picture. And the townspeople, it says in Mark, were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg, this is this is phenomenal. They began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. It is a sad culture when they would rather have a man tormented by demons in their presence than have the Son of God who can bring salvation in their presence. Do you know dead people make deathly decisions? Here's another surprising contrast. And as he, the man who's now delivered, was getting, as, or no, as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. Don't miss that. Truly born again people want to be with Jesus. They want to be near him, not away from him. And consistent with Jesus' purpose and mission, he says this, He did not permit him, but he said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. And listen to this phrase. And how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. From demon possessed with thousands of demons to a preacher proclaiming the mercy of God. Do you know that only God's mercy can save? Only unmerited divine love, which is grace, can rescue from merited divine wrath punishment that we deserve we're going to close with this five terms kind of build up on each other in these 10 verses mercy love grace kindness and gift have you received the gift of god's son have you received the gift of his mercy let's pray